Welcome to The View magazine's Rebel Justice podcast. In this two-part episode, we've been exploring the issues in the prison system with two experts, Prison Governor and Director General Phil Wheatley and Prison Law Consultant Laura Owen. Last time, Phil and Laura talked about the huge backlogs in the prison system caused by successive government funding cuts. In this second part, they discuss how the prison experience itself has changed, with experienced, knowledgeable officers leaving the profession and inexperienced staff struggling to cope. They also talk about the positives of their roles and how they would like to see the prison system change in the future. Laura, do you have stories from your clients where they say, oh, you know, when I served the sentence back X number of years, this was what was going on and now I'm finding myself in this situation? Yeah, a lot of people, especially a lot of people that have been through the system for a number of years, are saying now how much custody has changed. Younger people are coming in, but like Phil just said, the experience of the staff is completely different to how it used to be. That side of staff that had the knowledge, that could manage people, that could work with them and speak with them as humans, seems to have disappeared. And we seem to do have more of a culture of younger prison officers that don't have the experience, that are just trying to control as opposed to relate to people and engage with them as a human. Um, and a lot of people seem to struggle with that side of it as well, especially that I've been in the system for a number of years. And it's something that a lot of clients say to me regularly now, I can't do this anymore. The system's changed. Everything's changed. And it's not where I want to be anymore. Let me ask this just for a practical example. Laura, I'll ask you about now. And uh, Phil, if you don't mind, I'll ask you about how it was perhaps in your early 20s. So. Again, varies from prison to prison, but let's just say you're run-of-the-mill category B prisoner. So this would be your non-extremely violent, would you say, at the beginning of a sentence, non-extremely violent uh, inmates. So someone who's serving a sentence or on remand for supplying drugs, something along those lines, burglary, anything in that kind of range. Run-of-the-mill prison. What's a day in the life of an inmate look like now? It's quite a difficult one because a lot of establishments are still using COVID as a means of keeping people in the cell for a lot longer than they would have in the past. Some have gone back to normal, so they would usually get up in the morning and go to work. A lot work in kind of the workshops, places like that, wing cleaners, um, some will have survey jobs. They would then have go back to their cells usually about 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. Um, and then go back out in the afternoon and again just work. Some prisons are now back to giving association in the evening, so they would have a couple of hours out of their cells on the wings in the evening, um, and then they would be locked up then for the rest of the evening. Association in prisons is the time that prisoners spend out of their cells. They can use it to socialise, make phone calls and use communal facilities. Offender behaviour programmes are provided in prisons to try and change people's attitudes and behaviours that will reduce the risk of them re-offending. They help to build positive social attitudes and encourage people to consider their goals for the future. And how does that work also in terms of programmes, courses, education, visits? So programmes usually take priority. So if someone has a programme that they need to do as part of their sentence plan, that would then fit into their regime um, for whatever period that programme was for. Programmes have changed a lot recently, whereas most of the programmes now are kind of rolling programmes, um, the lengthier kind of more intense ones so the individual would then fit that around their their routine whilst they're on that so a program such as the kaizen which has three different strands fit to cover your general violence your interpersonal violence or your sexual element they would usually be for a minimum of six months up to a maximum of 18 so the individual would do that 
however many days a week, depending on their sentence time and their needs, when their tariff was expiring, when they were coming to reviews. Um, so that would all fit around as and when they needed it. And visits, um, availability in terms of being able to see family and friends? Um, family visits seem to have gone a lot more back to normal. Um, where a lot of prisons now, even when I still do face-to-face visits, family visits now seem to be back to normal. Um, the visits they get depend on their IEP status. Um, so someone that was what they class as enhanced prisoner, they get more visits than someone that would be on like a basic regime. And they would usually be on basic regime if they'd kind of disobeyed the rules. IEP stands for Incentive and Earned Privileges. There are different levels of IEP based on each individual's behaviour. IEP status can affect how many visits prisoners are allowed each month and access to TV and time outside their cell. Weren't as compliant as other prisoners. But family visits seem to be completely back to normal. Um, I've not heard any complaints from family members now. It seems to be the legal visit side of it that seems to have more problems than the domestics, domestic side of visits. Phil, can you give us a little bit of insight as to when the system was working a lot better, how different it would have been to what we've just heard? Yes, I think in terms of operating well, so prisoners were being treated decently in most prisons. I mean, there'll never be staff misbehaviour or things go wrong, but where the quality of care was quite good, we're probably looking at the late, 2000s before 2010, around about 2006, 7, was things were about as good as they got. Uh, there was a greater provision of programs than per head of the population, so there was a greater provision of uh, appropriate offending behaviour uh, programs, less difficulty therefore doing the things required to get parole. Uh, time out of cell was much greater in nearly every prison, and particularly in Category B training prisons. So evening association was standard, uh, and it was a big deal when, in order to save money during the labour uh, period in charge, not a conservative decision, reductions in funding meant that we locked up early on a Friday, and Friday evenings everybody was behind their door. And that was a real change, and was the first sign that uh, that falling government funding and austerity later on was going to really cut back into prison regimes. Otherwise, prisoners were out of their cells for most of the day, lock up at lunchtime, lock up usually at tea time, uh, evening association, and behind your doors, uh, 8, 8.30 was about par for the course. Nine o'clock when I first joined the service, interestingly. Uh, and a reasonable variety of quite well-paid, in prison terms, uh, jobs, uh, as we got quite a few in from the private sector, which paid better. So we were doing work for companies who were paying to get work done in prison. Uh, that doesn't mean prison was perfect. And at that point, I think I could say that amongst all prisons, even the most sort of difficult prisoners, uh, any form of abusive behaviour towards prisoners was not tolerated. It didn't mean it never happened, but there was no culture of this is okay here which there have been if you went back in time in the 60s and 70s. You hit a prison officer, you're probably expected to be hit back by prison officers, and everybody thought that was okay. I never did, but some people thought that was okay. And that sort of culture completely disappeared by uh, the the sort of mid-2000, 2010 period. And uh, 
So that, I think, was prisons at their best. And we thought they would go on improving. We did because we spent a long time improving them. We didn't think we were going to stop improving them. But actually, they've slid back under pressure of uh, lack of resources and too many prisoners and too many quite difficult prisoners because it is difficult to do a long-term sentence. If you're going to do double the time, that's really hard work. If you're on IPP sentencing, you never know when you're going to get out. It's very difficult. And therefore, you tend to be difficult for good reason, because uh, this is messing with your head and you're finding it a real struggle. So accepting and putting to one side for a moment the fact that resources need to come from the government uh, and there's a massive lack of funding uh, across the board, can something be done aside from that uh, between maybe the Prison Officers, uh, Prison Officers Association and lawyers such as yourself, Laura? Uh, are there some ideas that could be put forward for a greater openness, transparency, or uh, an, 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 a, a way to kind of let a more well-oiled machine function uh, with another well-oiled machine? I think it's a difficult one to answer um, because I think a lot of it comes down to kind of just treating people with dignity and respect. And that doesn't seem to be coming from the prison not all prisoners, but um, from prisoners and then the staff alike. So I think that's a difficult one. But I think if you treat people like humans, you can relate to them more, you can engage with them better. So that would be the first thing, just to kind of take people back to just treat people like humans. Because that is one of the things a lot of prisoners will have concerns about, how they are treated, especially by staff younger than them. That is something that doesn't seem to come through in the training of how to treat people. And again, I'm not generalising all prison officers, but in a lot of the newer prisons or in the prisons where their intake is quite young members of staff, it seems to be do as I say and it doesn't seem to have that respect side of it, if that makes sense. So I think it's just taking things back to basic, just basic humanity to engage with people and help people that way. Mm. And let's go back to funding for a moment. I think you touched upon legal aid, so you, I think... Would you say most of the work that you do is legally aided, publicly funded? Yeah, so 99% of the, the work I do is legal aid, um, legal aid based. And that's, again, why so many firms are closing, just because there's just the funding isn't there. We're working out, we're working significantly more on fixed fees to ensure that we get paid for the work we actually do. Otherwise, we can't, like I said before, we can do 10 hours of work and get paid for four of them. What other sector would say that or deal with that? They wouldn't, which is why so many firms are closing or just closing their prison law departments down because there just isn't the money there anymore. Is Are there aspects of what you do that aren't funded? Yes. Yeah, so if you, I, I tend to have a lot of clients that have difficulty in mental health issues. We only get paid for a parole board review and adjudication. Um, and that's primarily what legal aid covers now for parole, for prisoners. Um, so there are numerous times where I might have to contact different agencies to try and get different help in that I don't get paid for to assist the prisoner because they're not getting the help any other way. Uh, Phil, if you had a magic wand for a day, if you were the Lord Chancellor and there was a budget, um, what would you, uh, I mean, it's a really open-ended question, isn't it? But is there anything specific, um, any specific ideas you would have in terms of where that budget would go? At the moment, I'd be spending the money to try to make sure that I could end up with a mixed group of staff, uh, so they aren't all young and they aren't all old. But I've got a mix of experiences 
uh, I've got a, a, and I've got consistency, so I haven't got a high turnover of staff. So I'd have to address the staff terms and conditions to ensure I incentivize people to stay. And I incentivized a wide range of people to join. I didn't just get 19 and 20 year olds joining because it's not a bad starting pay and they're going to do it for three or four years and then leave and go and do something else. Uh, and until I can get a steadier group of staff and enough staff to do the job, I'll never make prisons work as well as they should. Uh, once you could steady the staff, uh, then you can work on basic safety and you have to make sure that you control bad behaviour so you don't have drugs being smuggled in. You've got to work hard on liaison between all the different players in prisons, so mental health, have to work with primary care, have to work with the prison service, have to inform education about what some of the problems of prisoners who are in the education service. You need much more cooperation than we very often get. Uh, we don't watch it. It's all a series of bit part players who aren't operating in an integrated way. And that probably means I need to have uh, more managers and I need good managers. And prison managers are in the main pretty good, actually. Some really good people working as governors, uh, some high-quality managers. They just at the moment, they're trying to make bricks without straw. They haven't got the resources to do the proper job. And I get really annoyed when I see people saying the problem is all to do with leadership. That simply isn't true. The problem is mainly to do with giving leaders an impossible job and then blaming them for not succeeding because you've given them an impossible job, which is a good cop-out for those who have not given them the resources. It doesn't actually help improve things. It just lets the real accountable people off the hook. Speaking of that, Phil, uh, would you say that given the fact that it's not well paid to be a prison officer uh, and given the fact that there's danger in the, in the role uh, and all the other challenges that come with it, why are people applying to join? Is there something in the person's character or nature that leads them into a position like that where they want to help others? Do you find that the people who are joining prisons are doing it for uh, for good reasons, helping their fellow man? I think actually many of the people who join, join for all the right reasons. They find the work so difficult and not as rewarding as they thought, because though they're trying to help people, very often the people they're trying to help don't want to be helped and are being quite abusive and difficult. You read the latest report by the Inspector of Prisons on Woodhill, you find the staff are being bullied by aggressive prisoners, making their life nearly impossible. So in my experience, many of the best prison officers I ever worked with didn't join out of a sense of we're going to make the world better, they joined because they wanted a steady job that paid well and had quite a good pension, but they were really good at it. So I'd, I'd settle for having a better mix of staff. Uh, I think I'm getting motivated staff. I probably need to concentrate more on resilience so that I end up with staff who can cope with adversity because inevitably prison isn't an easy place to work. And I think we probably uh, underestimate the difficulty for staff in coping with often very, very problematical, aggressive behaviour by prisoners and trying to make sure that we've got staff who can manage that without it damaging them. Uh, and you need to encourage staff to stay. Actually, starting pay for prison officers is much the same as it was when I left in real terms, and it was quite good at attracting people then. But we once had a long incremental scale which encouraged people to stay. It's now a very short scale and it finishes much earlier, which means that good people... Uh, probably age 25, 30, by that stage, think, ooh, I can get another job that pays better without all this aggravation. 
and that's incentivizing people to go just when they're beginning to know enough to be really effective. Laura, you mentioned that you touched upon uh, the fact that lawyers aren't doing, aren't keen to do this anymore, and, and departments are closing down. Uh, but what's the knock-on effect? Because obviously you're 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 working, you're doing ten hours when you're getting paid for four hours, but that can't carry on forever. I'm sure. Um, so what is the impact? Because again, you know, in this in-between stage where there's still still some hope, uh, you're able to carry on, uh, and you're able to take a loss in cases because you know you're passionate about what you do and you have a long-standing relationship with your client perhaps uh, but that's unsustainable i imagine so in a few years time what will it look like to try to help those in those uh, those inmates in those situations as a prison lawyer i think the difficulty is because of the lack of funding what we're seeing is a lot of newly graduated um individuals are being put into prison law roles by firms. Um, so as they're starting out, we're getting a lot of younger prison lawyers trying to represent clients and trying their best for them, but they don't have the experience. They don't have the ad- advocacy experience to sit in front of a parole board and fairly represent clients. So it's a difficult one to answer because th- there are a lot of individuals and a lot of prison lawyers that st- are still continuing regardless. Um, so I think what we will tend to find is you'll have the less experienced people representing clients on the paper reviews and then leaving the oral hearings and the more difficult cases for the experienced members of the team, if that makes sense. And so with that happening, um, what would the impact be on the prisoner? The, The clients just wouldn't get fair and adequate advice, especially in the initial stages. And that's something when I seem to be instructed by people that have had other previous reps they haven't had the knowledge they haven't had the experience they've been falsely advised I've had clients tell me that they were told by their solicitor not to undertake this work because it it shows that they've done something wrong or and they're just badly advised whereas someone with a knowledge and experience of the system can talk them through what the parole board expects what they need to do and basically tell them what what they should be doing before a parole hearing and Phil, I assume that on the prison side of things, that's something you would want because you are for a uh, a speedier, more expedited process. Yes, I want the calls to work properly. I would if I was back at work. I mean, it's not me as an ordinary member of the public mm. now. I want the courts to work properly. I want the parole board to be uh, left free to make decisions without pressure from ministers to uh, try and prevent them letting people out. I want an honest assessment of the risk. Uh, I want us as a society to use prison with care. I think prison is required as a punishment. I don't believe it should be abolished, and I think it should uh, be used in ser- for serious crime. Uh, but we need to use it with caution and not regard it as something that doesn't count unless you can. it's a multiple of 10. Um, it's a let-off. So I think we devalue the currency. We once felt happy when we heard somebody got a seven-year sentence. We thought that was justice. And now we seem to think it needs to be 15 or 20 years before we think we've been treated properly. So I think we need to try and re-establish that prison is a heavyweight punishment used parsimoniously and used properly uh, so that we run ordered and safe prisons that give prisoners a chance of uh, learning to live a better life without being able to guarantee that they'll all come out reformed. We should never say that because we can't do it. 
but at least having lived in a prison that was safe and crime-free and treated people decently and maintained order. And uh, that, I think, if we can get back to thinking that's what prisons meant to do, to be safe, ordered, and give people opportunities, and to try to make sure those are properly funded against the background of a criminal justice system that operates like it should, not with every bit of the system under strain, from prison lawyers trying to help those with parole, to defence lawyers, uh, to a shortage of prosecution lawyers, so we can't even get people to prosecute. This is a terrible state to have got a key service in criminal justice matters for the country, and it should be done properly. It can be done properly, but let's try and make sure that we, the people who enter it, uh, are uh, we, we allocate them around in a way that uses the resources we've got, not flogs every bit of it to death, so none of it works. Well said. Uh, just as we finish up, my final question, I suppose, is to Laura. Uh, Laura, with a lot of your work being kind of client-facing, uh, can you share, us, share with us a story, um, positive outcome, a time when the system has worked in the benefit of somebody who has tried or uh, somebody who has worked hard to get out of their situation. Uh, a success story, if you will, uh, where, where, where the system has worked in favor of such a person. So I've represented a client from around 2017 um, who had been given two IPP sentences, uh, the second of which I think he was around 21 at the time. In 2019, everybody support is released to a pipe approved premises, which is a psychologically informed planned environment, which assists individuals with the transition from custody to the community. A reduction in funding meant that the pipe approved premises pulled the bed space before his hearing and he ended up get, going to open conditions three times, even though all the professionals agreed that he wouldn't cope in open conditions. It wasn't the right environment for him. We sat his parole board in April this year whilst he was back in closed conditions. Um, he's had a number of mental health difficulties. He's been in and out of the mental health system. As I said, he's already he had two IPP sentences, failed in open conditions three times because of the periods of hopelessness, frustrations, re-entering kind of drug lapses whilst he was in open conditions because he wasn't coping and didn't have the support. But in April this year, with the help of two psychologists and a very good prison offender manager, um, we managed to secure his release to a Piper Free premises in Newcastle, where he was provided with his Section 117 aftercare. He was provided with the help, the help of the approved premises, psychologically informed um, staff around him, and he's now settling into the community far better than he would have done had he gone through the open route because he just couldn't cope with it. So everybody worked together, um, aside from his prison offender, uh, his community offender manager, who actually felt he should stay in custody when everybody else agreed his risk was manageable in the community and with the right support in place, he would succeed. And he's still in the community at the minute and still doing really well. He has times where he struggles, which we expected, but with the support of the psychologist and those working with him, the various agencies, he's doing really well. And I suppose days like that are the days when you remind yourself that that was why you joined this profession yeah. in the first place. And, yeah, and he still rings me now and he's like, I've, I have, I've had a bad day, but I've spoke to the staff, I'm doing what I should be, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, and that's when it's nice to hear the kind of success stories and that he keeps in touch as well and keeps telling me how well he's doing. Um, because again, a lot, a lot of the time people get out and you never hear from them again until they get recalled. 
So it's nice to have the, the, someone that appreciates everything that's been put into place because we worked so hard myself, the independent psychologist. We had a drug and alcohol agency that we drafted in ourselves to provide him with additional support. Um, so we did so much to try and give him the best chance to succeed in. And that's when it's all worthwhile. Well, thank you both so much for your expert views and your insights. Uh, I really think that this was quite eye-opening. And that concludes the second part of our insider's view into some of the issues facing the prison system today. Phil and Laura, thank you for your thought-provoking insights. A functioning and effective prison system is not just important to those living and working inside it, but to all of us as a society. If prison is simply about punishing people and not about preparing inmates for life on the outside, that will negatively affect all of us as a society. Rebel Justice Podcast is produced by The View magazine. For insight into more important issues around justice and more, subscribe to The View at theviewmag.org.uk and follow us on our social media. We are Rebel Justice on X, formerly Twitter, and The View magazine on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you.